It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. It is a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for listening. And I'm going to start out by talking about the lack of prosperity in the United States. The lack of economic growth and prosperity. It's going to be a big topic. I've got Steve Forbes coming on, the great Steve Forbes at the half hour. And by the way, you can listen to us live stream on the Internet. All right, let's see. What is it? LarryCudlowShow.com. Is that right? LarryCudlowShow.com, live stream on the Internet. You can hear us throughout the country, around the world all over the solar system, including the Milky Way, wherever that is. Somebody's got to tell me what the Milky Way really is. And by the way, um, during the week, Monday through Friday, Fox Business Network, the name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Fox Business. And if you can't uh, get to us at 4, just text message your favorite 9-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show, and you'll never miss a single thing. But I want to go back to this thing. You know, during the Biden years, we've had all these left-wing, woke, big government socialist policies. So, for example, last year the economy basically did not grow, and it registered an 8% inflation rate. A very bad year. But that's really only part of the story that I want to get to this morning. You know, we had a live town hall on Fox Business Thursday, live. We had an audience and so forth. We had some very distinguished contributors and panelists. I took a couple questions from the audience. And the basic theme is we have got to get this country back on track as the greatest growth machine in the world and throughout history. And we're not doing it. And it's not just Joe Biden in the last couple of years, although he sure has contributed with his left-wing policies. We spend too much, we tax too much, we regulate too much. We have too much inflation. But I want to give you some numbers right off the top, some numbers. Stay with me on this. For over 50 years, following World War II, the great American powerhouse economy averaged Three and a half percent per year, and that's adjusted for inflation. Three point five percent per year for fifty years. It wasn't just a flash in the pan. wasn't a couple of years. wasn't even just ten years. Fifty over fifty years. All right, the numbers start in nineteen forty-seven, and I'm going to the year two thousand. But what's happened is. Over the last 20 years plus, two decades, our economy has slumped to less than 2% per year. We've gone from 3.5% to less than 2%. That's a very bad performance. It's like the rest of the world. We're no better than Europe. Maybe a little better than the European Union. But I'm telling you, we used to be vastly faster, stronger, wealthier. We're losing our advantage. By the way, if we had grown 
at 3.5% for the last 20 years plus, the economy would have been $9 trillion stronger, but we lost $9 trillion. And if we don't restore 3.5% growth, which should be our target, then in the next 10 years, we're going to lose another $8.5 trillion. You follow me? We've lost $9 trillion in the last 20 years, and we could lose another $8.5 trillion in the next 10 years if we don't get back to free market capitalism, free enterprise capitalism. We've lost like over $20 trillion of economic income and growth. And in fact, that would translate to a typical middle class family, a loss of roughly $75,000 in total for a typical family. Imagine that. You'd be $75,000 richer if we, the United States, had kept up the 50-year growth rate of 3.5%. So just think about that. We've gone from 35 for 50 years to under 2 the last uh, 22 years. And it's cost us nearly $20 trillion, and it's cost the average typical family about $75,000. These are bad numbers. These are not prosperity numbers. These are not really American numbers. But we've been stuck in this rut. So what's the problem? Well, I'll tell you, right off the top, the federal government keeps getting bigger and bigger. And the private sector, the free enterprise free market capitalist private sector, the business sector, keeps getting relatively smaller. In fact, here's a terrible stat. Federal, state, and local government, federal, state, and local governments now consume 44% of our GDP. Can you imagine that? Almost half of the economy is absorbed by the government. That is not good. And that is nothing if not big government socialism. Sure, Biden and his woke policies have accelerated, intensified this, but it's been creeping up for over two decades. Bush the second, Obama, now Trump. I'm going to give my former boss some credit because his tax cuts gave the economy a big boost for a couple of years. It was terrific. And we and they paid for themselves. And they, they affected middle-class families. They got the biggest benefits, minority groups, poverty rate fell. But it was only a couple of years, unfortunately. Then came the pandemic in 2020. And then came the Biden administration which is focused on more big government socialism, more spending, more borrowing, more taxing, more regulating. That's what's happened here. Over 20 years. At the federal level, the post-war average for federal spending was 18.9% of GDP. The last two decades, that's grown to over 21% of GDP. And right now, 
The federal spending as a share of the economy in the Biden years is 24 percent of GDP. So Uncle Sam has basically taken almost a quarter of our economy. It used to be less than a fifth. This is not good. Too much spending, too much taxing, too much regulating, too much inflating, not enough work, not enough workfare, too many government benefits, too much welfare and not workfare. Right nowadays, you've got a bunch of woke socialists. And they're literally strangling the economy. Strangling the economy. From energy, through corporations, to small business, even to the gig economy. And here's another point. And the Bidens are really guilty of this. They want to punish success, not reward it. In other words, you work hard, you start a business, build a business, could be a family business, and they want to raise your taxes and your regulations. They want to punish success. They talk about diversity and equity and inclusion, not merit, not merit, mind you, diversity, equity, inclusion, all these woke values. Barack Obama's years were heavy into this. Biden is continuing it and then some. And, of course, they're waging war against fossil fuels, which permeate every part of our economy. And prices are high and supplies are scarce, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Ronald Reagan, my former boss years ago, used to always say, government is the problem, not the solution. And boy, was he right. Reagan used to also say the scariest words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Boy, was he right about that. You can watch these crazy Davos climate fanatics, John Kerry and Davos, screaming out, money, 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 said it nine times. He's talking about federal money, federal government money to go to all these uh, crazy climate schemes, these left-wing radical climate schemes. We don't need any of it. We should go back to Donald Trump's energy independence is what we ought to do. But you get my point. Government is too big. Government is blocking economic growth. Government is strangling economic growth. Government spends way too much. Government regulates way too much. $200 billion plus regulations, new regs, in Biden's first year alone. Can you imagine that? They're going after, it's not just fossil fuels, not just oil and gas. They're going after businesses, large and small businesses. This crazy woman, Lina Khan, running the Federal Trade Commission. She is anti-business. The Justice Department is anti-business. Of course, the Energy and Interior Departments, anti-business. The EPA, anti-business. The Federal Reserve hopefully will stay out of the climate game, but who knows for sure. That's what Jay Powell said. We're not going to do climate because we don't have a mandate. I hope he stays with that. But my point is, we have suffered a loss of prosperity 
for over 20 years, and prosperity is the heart of America. You know, remember, we are endowed by our creator with unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That pursuit of happiness, we need prosperity for that. We need to help families. We need to help their small businesses. We need to make our currency reliable so we don't have inflation. We need to stop the spending and the borrowing. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, and the others. And by the way, they were very friendly with the original free market rock star, Adam Smith, who led the Scottish Renaissance, the Scottish Enlightenment. I know this is 250 years ago, but it's germane. They were in touch with that. What was Adam Smith, the founder of free market economics? It's written throughout the... Declaration of Independence. They were friends. Guess what? Adam Smith wrote his great free market book, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776. When was the Declaration of Independence published? 1776. These are not coincidences. They are history. They are history. My point is, we have to go back to free market economics. We must go back to free market economics. We must restore American prosperity, which was the envy of the world and which gave us here at home our spirit, our optimism, our happiness. That's the task before us. We're going to have a lot to say about these themes over the course of the show. But we got to turn less than 2% growth. we got to go back to 3.5% growth. It's worth $75,000 to every single family. And it's worth about $20 trillion, $20 trillion to the entire economy if we can do it in the next 10 years. Think about it. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and prosperity. The great American prosperity. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Uh, Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. So I want to just continue this. You know, we must regain and restore American prosperity. It has to be a national priority. We cannot accept less than 2% growth. We need to go back to the post-World War II 3.5% trend that literally lasted over 50 years. The last two decades, we've fallen back. And again, I say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Prosperity is such valuable, important. It's really a heart of America kind of value. Prosperity gives us resources at home. It also gives us security. Those resources. Remember, Reagan rebuilt the economy. Reagan rebuilt the economy after incredible, you know, stagflation, recession, high inflation for the 10 years that preceded him. He built the economy. It grew at about 5.5% from 1982 to 1989. 
That not only gave him jobs at home, raised spirits, gave America's back, Americans back prosperity, conquered inflation, but it produced the resources. It produced the revenues, even at lower tax rates. The Laffer curve worked. Reagan slashed the tax rate from 70% to 28 There are only two brackets, 28 and 15, when he left office. It was essentially a flat tax. The economy boomed about 5.5% per year for seven years. Produced huge increase in jobs, manufacturing, investment, technology, consumer spending recovered. Like I say, inflation came way down. Family incomes are worth much more. But it threw off so much tax revenues because of the growth and because people stopped tax avoidance. We had the resources to produce the defense and security to defeat Soviet communism. We defeated it. It crumbled. We blew them out of the water with economic prosperity as the backbone. We're not doing that now. We're not blowing anybody out of the water. Now, Joe Biden's helping Ukraine. I'm I'm in favor of that. But he was late to the party. He was intimidated by Putin. His diplomacy failed. And one reason for all that is his economy failed. And one reason for that is he shut down oil and gas production, which drove prices up over $100 a barrel, which made Putin rich. And so he invades Ukraine. Just like 10 years earlier or so, 15 years earlier, All prices went to $150 a barrel, made Putin rich. What did he do? He invaded Georgia. Then he invaded the Crimea when oil went over. That's that's the problem here. Why are we making Putin rich? I want to make Americans rich. That's why I want lower spending and taxing and regulating. Free up the economy. Liberate the American economy. Economic freedom is how we're going to solve these problems. Not with big government socialism and central planning and woke values. That's destroying us from within. And it will eventually damage us from without. Those are my concerns. That's why I'm leading off with this economic stuff. We'll we'll get to the uh, classified documents and all that and the craziness in Davos. And we'll get to the stock market later in the show. But right now, I'm worried about prosperity or the lack thereof. Let me take a break here. On the other side of the break, my great pal, one of the smartest people in this country, Mr. Steve Forbes, is going to come and talk to us about prosperity versus socialism. I'm Cudlow. Please stick around, folks.
From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. <clears throat> Excuse me. We bring in my great friend Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media and author of the excellent book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Steve Forbes, thank you ever so much for doing this. Good to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, listen, you were great at at our town hall on Thursday, our live town hall. You were just spectacular. And I wanted to continue that conversation because, again, I I talked about in my opening here this morning, uh, America used to grow at 3.5% for 50 years, but the last 20 years plus is less than 2%. That's not much prosperity. The inflation rate is... Uh, it's doubled and then doubled again under Biden, so that makes the story even worse. But, Steve, here's let me start with this. There's a TIP poll, TIP Insights poll. They're pretty good, those guys. Uh, the U.S. is evolving into a big government socialist state. Uh, 51% say yes. 31% say no. 51% think we're evolving. But the thing is, people don't like it and they don't want to pay for it because when you ask them, are you willing to pay higher taxes to support more social programs? 57% says no, and 35% says yes. But folks don't really like it. If we don't get out of this big government socialism and start restoring incentives to the economy through free market capitalism, we're in trouble, Steve Forbes. We're in trouble. Well, well, as you've pointed out, it goes against the whole uh, basis of the American dream, or as Abraham Lincoln put it, the opportunity to improve your lot in life. Mm. That's what's made us the magnet. No matter what your background, you come here, you're free, you have a chance to move ahead, and your success is other people's success. It's not zero sum. And uh, we heard a lot of nonsense uh, before uh, you went to the White House and before uh, your boss did, uh, Donald Trump that we are in an era of secular stagnation, that we couldn't grow more than 1% or 2%. That's nonsense. We had a couple of years of growth, and we've heard this nonsense before. They, they peddled it back in the 1930s. And it's not just taxes and spending these guys are into. They're also into regulation, modern socialism. They realize you don't have to take over businesses by nationalizing them. You just take them over by regulation. Make sure they can't survive without your permission. So they use businesses to uh, advance their uh, so-called social agenda, which leads to stagnation and a lack of opportunity. And who's hurt the most? Those with the least. So I hope our guys starting in the House will see this as an opportunity to lay the foundations for a big blowout in 2024. We're not going to get real control of spending until we get a president who's going to work with Congress on it. Like you mentioned on your show, Calvin Coolidge and Warren Harding back in the 1920s did that. Coolidge was the only president in modern times who left office with spending below the level when he took office. Mm. And America prospered. Yes. Those guys, you know, it's interesting to pause a bit history. Uh, the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties, the Jazz A's was one of the most um, prosperous periods in American history. They came into office with a terrible recession, inflation following World War One, and all of Woodrow Wilson's progressivism. But they they cut spending and taxing, and they also, ab- let's see, they abolished one third of the debt because the revenues were pouring in during that period. The growth rate was something like five and a half percent per. 
per year. No, that's not right. The growth rate was 7%, Steve. Sorry, I look at my notes. 7% growth. <laughs> so they were able, they had enough money to, to take down a third of the debt. Imagine that. That would be unheard of today. And uh, Coolidge uh, liked to say that taking one penny more than you need for essential government programs is larceny, legalized larceny. Uh, his father was a tax collector, and he went with him back in the Vermont days, uh, you know, over a century, 100 and a half, 130 years ago. But he went with his father and saw these poor farmers scratching out pennies, nickels to pay their taxes, saw what it did to hardworking people, and it stuck with him. In Washington, they have this idea the money is there. It's always going to be there. Business will somehow always produce it, and they can steal it. Or tax it, I should say. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the other problems here is that we saw a lot of this during the Obama years, and we're seeing it again during the Biden years. Trump Trump tried to stop it for a couple of years, but it was a brief period. But, you know, the the prevailing view is to punish success, not reward it. That's their view on, on, on spending, regulating, and taxing. You know, Steve, merit doesn't matter anymore. It's diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, woke values, uh, tax-rich well, people. It's well, incredible. They have the attitude. They have the attitude. If you succeed in business, you're at heart a crook. Yeah. You know, yeah. they say every great fortune behind it is a terrible crime. <laughs> and so that's the attitude. You succeed, it's because you're bad. And if you want to make up for it, you give it away. Give it back, they say, uh, your ill-gotten gains. <clears throat> and so they see themselves as the great moralizers, occupying the high level of a morality, when they do the exact opposite, hurting people. And what they're doing, I mean, just everyday quality of life. You've hit it on it before, washing machines. Uh, you look at dishwashers, shower heads, everything, light bulbs. <laughs> they want to control. They 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 make everything less efficient. If you want a washing machine today, I know a lot of people try to keep their old ones going because they can get the wash done in an hour instead of two or two and a half hours with the old one, and that's perverse. We're supposed to make them better, not worse. Whatever's whatever's good and easy in life, they want to take away. Whatever works, they want to take it away. I mean, look, they're doing the same thing in gasoline-powered cars. I mean, if people want to buy an electric car, fine. But they're subsidizing them so heavily, and you've got states on the West Coast, uh, Washington State, California. I bet it's going to come to New York soon, too. They want to ban gasoline cars. I mean, who, well, I, like who what, is, uh, I like what Wyoming's proposing, and that is banning electric vehicles by 2035. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make a point. I know. And, <laughs> but, 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 but the whole thing is, uh, you know, a huge waste of resources. You know, you've had Bjorn Lomborg and Mark Mills and others on your show mm. who point out that in the last 20 years, $5 trillion has been spent on alternative fuels, so-called mm. renewables. Five trillion, and what has that done globally? Reduce the reliance on fossil fuels by all of two percent, from eighty-four to eighty-two percent. Mm. Just imagine for a moment what that five trillion dollars would have done in improving people's standard of living, better, cleaner water for the rest of the world, new medicines and things like that. Huge opportunity cost. And in the budget, I hope our friends on Capitol Hill will focus. They have enough carry. At Davos, pointed it out. So did Al Gore. 
this new so-called anti-inflation bill, $369 billion for green programs. You know where that's going to go? Down the you-know-what, which mm. don't work very well anymore because of their regulations. <laughs> Not enough water pressure. <laughs> no, that's right. I love John Kerry. Nine monies. He goes, money, money, money. He said it nine times. Whose money? It's going to be taxpayers' money. People, you know, people don't want to pay for this. I mean, Bjorn Lomborg uh, basically points out every time. People don't want to pay for this. The exorbitant costs of this uh, climate change cult, um, which has not moved the meter, and China and India keep polluting the atmosphere anyway. Yes, and uh, they, they do crazy things like uh, virtue signaling with the war on plastic straws. Mm. Do you realize that just a few wind turbines, each one of those turbines of wind farms, consume 900 tons of non-recyclable plastics? You take a couple of those, that exceeds all the plastic straws in the world put together. These wind farms that they're advocating. Hello? <laughs> you know, I think go back in history, and history is such a valuable guide as to what works and what doesn't work. And so you're talking about Harding and Coolidge and uh, their their Treasury Secretary, Andrew Mellon. So they gave us fabulous prosperity in the 20s with lower uh, taxes and lower spending. Um, we went through the whole Great Depression, the rise of big government, the rise of Keynesian socialism, etc. But John F. Kennedy comes back and cuts taxes and launches a boom. Reagan comes back and cuts taxes and launches a boom. Later on, Trump comes back and launches a mini-boom that was interrupted by COVID, but his corporate tax was the biggest one in history. So I think, Steve, there's – I don't know if people know this history. You know, the no, left – the, the left and, historians and, and, and make fun to, of it. You try to tell a Democrat that John Kennedy was a tax cut right. and that's uh, almost sacrilege. No, you're not supposed to say that. I remember when I ran for president and uh, quoted John Kennedy's famous speech in 1962, uh, ran it in an ad where he said, you know, a rising tide lifts, lifts all boats when he proposed – his first big uh, cut in income taxes. And uh, the Kennedy family was outraged. They said, you shouldn't do that. You didn't get our permission. Oh, come on. Uh, and you wrote a great book. You and uh, you and uh, Dmitrovic wrote yeah. a great book well, on how both Kennedy and Reagan realized that by reducing uh, taxes, tax rates, increasing opportunity, it's not just, it's not just a material prosperity. It's spiritual, enabling people to have the opportunity to recognize what their talents are, develop them, learn from their mistakes and move ahead mm. and create a better world for themselves. And uh, their kids can then build on what they built. We've been doing it for 200 years. I mean, I think that, you know, the point on history is really important. Um, when we did that town hall show on Thursday, we had Bill Bennett, William Bennett, former education secretary. And, you know, one of his points is we're moving, we're moving towards socialism the younger generation coming up is really moving towards socialism. Yes. One reason for that, Steve Forbes, is that nobody teaches the right history. In other words, the economic history we're talking about today, about the 20s and the 60s and the 80s and so forth, is not taught. We don't discuss it in public. And therefore, people don't know that there's a way out, You know that there's an option. And uh, I think that's absolutely crucial. We have to somehow 
you and myself and our circle of friends and others, um, we have to remind people of history. It's a really important thing. And the great way to do it, going back to, uh, not to be religious here, but uh, Jesus in the Bible is parables, stories. Hmm. Focus on stories of people who did great things in the past that made our lives better. And uh, people love stories, and they can see. You know, Henry Ford, for all of his flaws, turned a toy for the rich when he started tinkering with cars. Mm. Typical car cost over $100,000 in today's money. His moving assembly line turned a toy for the rich into something every working person could afford. You go back to the early 80s, what we used to call cell phones. The first one came out of a company called Motorola, cost almost $4,000, weighed Mm. like a brick, Mm. size of a shoebox, and had less than 60 minutes of battery life. Now these handhelds are are uh, you know virtual supercomputers mm. uh, uh apple's a great uh, steve jobs a lot of flaws but that's another thing you don't come into life perfect you learn and uh, that's what kids have to be taught you learn the lessons of life you can be inspired by people who stumbled put it together and did great things mm. and that's uh, that should be an inspiration not something to be hissed at and say oh they're just a bunch of crooks yeah john Kerry called the Gilded Age, which was also one of the most prosperous. I mean, you're talking about Henry Ford. Um, Post-Civil War, I don't know, it lasted until the progressives of the 1910, but uh, he called them robber barons, of course. I, I would call them vastly successful entrepreneurs. And as you just said, they invent stuff, and within a short period of time, uh, the efficiencies and the technology advances bring the cost down, so, you know, ordinary working folks, typical families can afford it, and that makes their life easier. Exactly. Right? If easier. Free markets, yes, if free markets are allowed to operate, everything that is rare and expensive becomes abundant, turns scarcity into abundance. And one thing about the 20s, you saw this great proliferation, labor-saving devices like the washing machine, like the vacuum cleaner, the electric iron. Uh, the electric stove, and so many other things. And uh, these, these these people just want to uh, crush that kind of innovation. Mm. That's where socialism fails. Socialism cannot predict the future. Mm. And we, we don't know today what uh, people are doing in their garages, laboratories, that are going to end up improving our lives. I predict Joe Biden will be defeated in 24. I'm not sure he's going to even uh, end up end up running. He thinks he can. <laughs> let, me take um, a, let me take a quick break. <laughs> I want to come back and talk. He's finally agreed to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy over the debt ceiling and spending. He said he wouldn't, but he did. Folks, we are talking to the great Steve Forbes, uh, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media and the author of his uh, latest book, Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. It's a great read. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with Steve Forbes. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. We're talking to Steve Forbes, chairman and editor-in-chief of Forbes Media, author of Inflation, What It Is, Why It's Bad, and How to Fix It. Uh, Steve Forbes, for a few minutes, the debt ceiling, uh, as I said at the close of the last segment, uh, Biden yesterday finally agreed to sit down with uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House uh, leader, House Speaker, Biden said he wouldn't. Now, Biden wants a clean debt bill, 
but McCarthy and the Republicans are going to want to cut spending. I mean, isn't spend? We have too much debt, but isn't the cause of that we spend too much? Uh, that's right. And I hope uh, when our guys go and sit down and then do these negotiations, that they uh, have something specific on the table, uh, and uh, they don't uh, end up doing things that sounds like you're going to uh, put grandma on a wheelchair and reel off a cliff. Uh, there's a lot of bad junk in there. Uh, the late Senator Coburn of Oklahoma, you remember him, mm-hmm. would come up with huge lists of idiot things in, in the spending bill. Mm-hmm. Now, the Democrats will say, well, you add all this up and it doesn't come to that much. But the American people understand each little bit makes it worse. So you go for the big obvious stuff and make it clear this is just the beginning uh, of uh, getting a, a Washington's a terrible situation in order. And uh, don't uh, don't propose a 30 percent national sales tax or something like that. Focus on the crazy stuff on spending that people can readily understand and say this is but a down payment, a small one on what we need to do to restore prosperity for you. You know, that's a point. Uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial today, um, this fair tax thing, it's been around forever. It's a lousy idea. I mean, you, you want a national sales tax, then then get rid of the 16th Amendment, for one thing. That's the income tax amendment. But secondly, yep. you're, you're going to heap a sales tax on top of state sales taxes. I mean, your flat tax was so much simpler and um, created much more incentive. I, I don't understand why these guys are still pushing the fair tax. Yeah, and uh, it's, hit it on a, it's, it's, it's a sales tax. And you tell people today. In the environment of today where prices are still high and food prices are still high, that you want to slap on a 30% sales tax? You want to tell a home buyer they're going to have to pay $150,000 sales tax? They buy a new house or ten or $20,000 to buy a new car? Boy, that's going to go over well politically. Not. Yeah, I know. That's a dumb idea. It'll never get through. In fact, it'll never well, get why through. Why do I, our guys shouldn't put it on the table? Why give them ammunition? Biden's already made reference to it. Yeah, he has. No, no, he has. You're quite right. Um, it was kind of a dumb idea by just a couple of uh, by just a couple of people. What's wrong with the Steve Ford flat tax? Run the flat tax by our listeners. Refresh them. You ran twice for president. It was extremely popular. It still is popular. The flat tax just doesn't get much play. No, uh, the, our, some of our political friends are not uh, good political entrepreneurs. But what it does is get rid of the tax code. You'd have generous exemptions for adults and for kids. Uh, so a family of four, for example, would pay no federal income tax on the first $53,000 of salary, only 17 cents on the dollar above that level. And uh, you could literally do it with a few keystrokes on a, on your uh, handheld or a postcard. Mm. And a number of countries have done it. Uh, it works uh, in, in, in the real world. And just imagine liberating the billions of hours and literally hundreds of billions of dollars we spend each year. So go to go to a simple single rate system after exemptions for adults and for kids. And uh, I've designed it in a way so that everyone gets a tax cut. So we avoid this crazy game of who's help, who's hurt. Make sure everyone's helped and uh, America would be helped. Well, look at the states. A whole bunch of states have gone to flat taxes. Yes, and that's one of the encouraging things about 2024 is uh, even though we didn't do well in the 2022 uh, races, you saw what was happening on the local level where they focused on local issues like taxes. 
great things have been done. Arizona, mm-hmm. flat tax down to one and a half percent. Several states are phasing out their state income taxes. So uh, I think there's a real, real issue here, and I hope the Republicans grab it, clutch it in uh, 2024. And as for a tax cut, call it the Kennedy-Reagan tax cut. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. Yes, very good. I love that. By the way, I, I just reminded, when Reagan left Washington, we had a virtual flat tax. There were two brackets, 28 yes. and 15, and it passed virtually unanimously. All these That's Democrats. You know, Joe Biden voted to for three it. In the, in, the, in the Senate, yeah. 97 to 3. Right. So, I mean, what? So there you have it. It's it's a virtual flood tax. Very close. OK, um, Joe Biden voted for it. Now, if I were Kevin McCarthy or somebody, I would just when I met with him, I would re- remind him of the vote in 1986. <laughs> All these the bill. Remember Bill Bradley and yes, Richard yes. Gephardt in the House. I mean, yeah. All these Democrats rallied around tax simplification, and the economy was growing at 5, 6, 7 percent. All right, we got to get out of here. Steve Forbes, the great Steve Forbes, terrific stuff. Folks, we need to make America prosperous again, okay? Let me repeat that. We need to make America prosperous again. Unfortunately, the outlook for the economy is not that great. Other side of the break, we got John Carney and Joe LaVorne. You're going to talk about the near-term economy. It's not a great story. Sorry. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. There's not enough free market prosperity. That's one of the problems. Last 20 years plus, and there's certainly not enough right now, as I guess we're looking in the eyes of a recession. So soft landers like me, I don't know, it's not looking too good. Uh, We're going to bring in John Carney, Breitbart News Editor, Economics and Finance, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. It's a must-read, by the way, very, very good coverage. And my pal, Joe Lavornia, who was the chief economist at the White House National Economic Council with me and is now chief economist at SMBC, Nico Securities, two smart fellas. Uh, Guys, let's just look at this for a minute. December numbers really coming in poorly. So I'm just going through housing starts down, industrial production down, manufacturing down. Retail sales down, existing home sales down. Uh, the Atlanta Fed GDP now has gone from four plus to three and a half, but I, gee whiz, I think they'd be lucky to get one. Um, we're not, we did not end the year on a good note, and I don't know if January is any better, John Carney. I'll start with you. The Philly Fed index was also down. It wasn't down as bad as the New York index, but we don't have any manufacturing in New York, so. <laughs> right. I think the Philly Fed index is probably the better indicator for sort of general manufacturing conditions. It has been negative for a long time now. It's stayed negative. And interestingly, the outlook is actually better. When they ask how things going to be six months from now, people say, yeah, they're going to get better. Um, but right now, it's very depressed. And when you get, you know, sort of confirmation, like the January number for the Empire State, 
being way down, and then you get a second negative one coming out of the Philly Fed, that's telling you that the decline is still ongoing uh, we, that we saw in December and November. So we've, we've been on a slide, right? It, it was pretty bad in November, got worse in December, and the early indications are that January is even worse. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, Joe LeBourne, you were not talking politics here. We're just talking numbers, data points. And is there any, uh, well, first of all, let's see. Joe, we get uh, fourth quarter GDP preliminary this coming week, I think. Is that is that that's right? right. Yes, you, that's correct. Yes. What are you looking for, Joe? Something around 3%, Larry, looks reasonable. The, huh. the problem is that the uh, it depends where the growth is. If it's in net exports and it's in inventories, that's not particularly robust because what that suggests is that growth this quarter and beyond will be softer. And uh, what we've talked about before was if you look at the last six recessions, in four of those quarters, real GDP at the time the economy went into recession printed 3-3. So it'd be kind of ironic if we wind up with a three-handle on on the fourth quarter just as a recession starts. Mm. Uh, as you know, things like capital expenditures, and we were you guys were just talking about manufacturing, which is clearly very important. But let me just reiterate or, or reinforce, housing's in a deep recession. I mean, we've had six quarters in a row where residential investment in GDP accounts has been negative. Mm. The third quarter was down almost 27%. We've got record collapse in home sales, pending home sales. Housing's already in a deep recession. Manufacturing's just entered one. You know, Joe, uh, well, to both Joe and John, first of all, I want to thank both of you for your great work on the TV show. I mean that. You, you guys have been fabulous, and we all appreciate it. Our whole team appreciates it, including me. But uh, just some more. Um, Joe Avornia, the production of business equipment, which is, you know, investment, which creates real wages and productivity. Uh, down 2% in December, down almost 2% in November, up slightly in October. That thing's down 12.9% annually, Joe, uh, for no, the last right. three months. So, And I just want to also add our good friends, uh, John Riding and Conrad DiQuatros over at RDQ Economics, they're looking for about 1% in the fourth quarter. So it just came out uh, in their, you know, their weekly report last night. Um, so here's the thing. I want to ask this to both of you. How do we get out of this? Or looking into this is January. We, we haven't gotten a lot of numbers yet in January. But uh, I'll start with you, John Carney. What? How? Are we in a recession right now? Are we flirting with a soft landing? You know, Ed Yardeni, people like that think the soft landing is there. He's a smart guy, but the numbers don't look good. I mean, what happens next? What are we bracing for? I think we're bracing for what is going to be a very tough situation where you have the numbers down. As you said, business equipment, that is businesses thinking about what the, you know, how their year is going to go, how even how next year is going to go. Not just business equipment, by the way, Larry, also business supplies. Nobody looks at that. It's paper, it's paper clips, it's mm. staples. It's also uh, chemicals used in manufacturing. That is down a lot, right around the same amount as the business equipment. So I think we're going to have a pretty rough first quarter here, and I don't think that slows down the Fed because the labor market's too hot. So we are going to have a potential negative first quarter. 
while the, while the Fed is raising rates, that is not something that happens very often where the Fed is raising into a contraction. And I don't think there's any way out of this in the short term, meaning the recession is going to happen. So, you know, prepare thyself, I guess. You know, Joe Lavorne, it's interesting on the Fed part. I'm reading um, uh, Vice Chair Lael Brainerd. You know, she's the dove. Uh, you know, she's the lefty on the board. Um, John Williams, the head of the New York Fed, who, who I regard as a, sort of a pretty smart numbers guy, Keynesian, but numbers guy. But Larry Summers uh, was on the tape, I think, was it yesterday or the day before? He's saying to the Fed, don't stop, keep raising rates. If you don't, if you don't keep tightening, it'll be like the 1970s, meaning, you know, they would stop and then they would go again, stop and they would go again. And during the 70s, of course, the inflation averaged whatever, 10 percent, 12 percent plus and got worse and worse. So Larry Summers is cheering them on, Joel. For you, <laughs> what do you make yeah, of that? I, I, um, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, Larry's a, is an interesting guy. He can be very, very insightful, very smart. But uh, on this, I completely disagree with him on because unlike the 1970s, the Fed has a lot of inflation fighting credibility. The dollar is still relatively strong. The yield curve is extraordinarily inverted, especially if you adjust for the level of rates. And virtually every break-even metric and even long-term inflation expectation survey shows inflation expectations are stable. So I don't believe we're going to go back to the 70s, at least not yet. My concern, Larry, is uh, Larry Kudlow, that is, is that the uh, is that the economy is not very dynamic. I believe it was very dynamic mm. under the prior administration, right. and the real interest rate is a function, in my opinion, of what productivity is. High growth environments inspire high real rates to align the supply and demand for capital. This is a very slow-moving, weakish, undynamic economy, generally speaking, and this is my view. And therefore, the real rate already is way too high. So my response would be the Fed needs to lower rates. It needs to stop the QT, see if these reopening of China helps alleviate some of these supply disruptions, which I believe have lessened, and then see what happens and let housing start to recover. Absent a Fed pivot, Larry, the downturn will be much deeper. Mm. You know, uh, John Carney, Joe's point, there is there's no dynamism in this economy. All right. So that was the subject. We did this town hall about the lack of prosperity. They are strangling the economy between, you know, the spending is is front and center. But that spent that spending comes with a mass of regulations, you know, and they're all driven by, you know, equity and diversity uh, and things of that sort. There's no merit left. And. Uh, they have raised taxes and then just straight on regulations like for fossil fuels or business. I mean, they're strangling the economy, John Carney, and it lacks dynamism. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Why would you be? I mean, just the thought of starting a new business or trying to attract capital for your new business. If you're not, you know, a the you know, a green energy company, if you're not uh, somebody who's out there trying to promote social justice, meaning the government has made it, the Biden administration and the Democrats on Capitol Hill have made it very clear that they want only certain kinds of businesses to go forward. So what does that mean? It means that, one, you get a very warped capital investment world because capital will go to where it's going to be subsidized. But second, uh, a lot of other businesses are going to say, you know what, it's not worth expanding 
because they're going to kill us mm. with all these regulations. So you do get a lack of dy- dynamism, and I think that is going to be something that we're going to be stuck with for a long time. Right, we, we're not getting out of that, and at least until 2024, we're stuck with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic uh, president, and possibly beyond that. So, you know, this is a very dark time for the economy because it's not just you know the recession we're having now, but the long drag we may be facing afterwards. Well, look, we've been facing. Look, this we're in. We're we're actually into the third decade of the long drag. That's what the point we, we talked about the uh, in the town hall the other day. Uh, we've gone from 3.5% trend growth for 50 years plus after World War II. And then since the year 2000, we've dropped down, I believe it's 1.9% per year. All right. That's uh, 22 years. So we're in the beginning of the third decade uh, Joe Lavornia of the long drag, secular stagnation, which need not be. We had a nice interlude when Donald Trump slashed the corporate tax from 35 to 21 and gave us immediate bonus uh, depreciation expenses. That was great. We had a couple of years there where it was humming. We actually got up to 4% growth for a brief time during the Trump years on a year-on-year basis. But basically the long drag continues. And, Joe, nobody wants to take risks. And uh, as John just said, I think nobody wants to start up a business. That's a problem. I'm just trying to figure out how, you know, typical folks, working folks can get out of this mess. But I think. Well, I mean, we saw, Larry, to the point of the old supply side notion that the rising tide uh, lifts all boats, that that was true following the. uh, the December 17 tax cut, mm-hmm. tax cut act, where you re, you've said it many times, the low and middle income across all race, creed, mm-hmm. uh, all had massive increase in living standards. So it did lift all all boats. But you know, when you, we talk about the secular drop, uh, a lot of this has to do with debt. And I think one of the things people forget about debt is that when you have a lot of debt, you have to service it and you have to roll it over. And that hurts innovation mm. because companies are more focused on either buying back equity or their stock, or, but importantly, just servicing the existing debt they have, which is partly a function of the Fed for many years, starting with Chairman Greenspan, keeping rates very low and not letting the markets clear so that you had this massive misallocation of capital. We saw that back under uh, Bernanke in the early 2000s, and we saw that continue through through Janet Yellen and up to Jay Powell today. So to get things better, I do. it has to be legislatively, it has to be regulatory-wise. Mm. The tax cuts that President Trump and the Congress put in place need to be made permanent to get some semblance of companies at least knowing what the outlook is like so they can plan around what they think the future is. If they're uncertain about the future, to John's point, they're not going to undertake that risk. Let me take a quick break, fellas. Uh, we're talking to John Carney of Breitbart. We're talking to Joe Lavornia of uh, SNBC. He's also... Uh, senior uh, researcher at the America First Policy Institute, and he's with um, SNBC Nico Securities, formerly White House NEC uh, Chief Economist. Fellas, when I come back, I want to talk about housing, uh, the interest rate aspect, the income aspect, the debt aspect. How do we get out of the housing mess? Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks. We are talking to John Carney of Breitbart and Joe Lavornia of SNBC Nico Securities. We're talking about the economy, which is slipping into recession, I guess, based on these horrible December numbers in early January. 
John Carney, I want to focus on housing for a minute. Uh, housing starts, single family housing starts, okay, uh, down 25% over the past year, 25% drop. And on top of that, permits, uh, building permits for single family housing down 35% over the past year. Uh, those are very bad numbers, and I think we had a bad number for existing home sales. Did that come out yesterday? I, I don't know. Maybe I'm jumping the gun on that. But these, You're right. these numbers are horrific. I mean, they're just yep. horrific, and the question is, how do you get out of this? Well, we had, we, you're right, we had bad uh, existing home sales down, uh, and they and the housing starts numbers are horrific. I mean, that is, you know, a quarter, you know, the industry has shrank by one quarter. That is a deep depression kind of number. Now, I will say it was a little bit inflated because we had a kind of post-pandemic housing boom. Mm. So, you know, we maybe you get some pullback, mm. but losing a quarter and then losing more than a third of the permits, that, is, you know, the permit is the forward-looking part. That's what people are planning going forward. So that means that's coming down. So far, home prices have held up. That's partly because supply is pretty low. Uh, a lot of people can't afford to sell their house, ironically, because if you're I, – so I, I know an older couple, they wanted to move to – their kids graduated. They have jobs now. They, so they have too big of a house. They wanted to move. But it was actually going to cost them more in their mortgage payments if they sold their house with a 3% mortgage and moved into a smaller house with a 7% mortgage. So you get this kind of freeze-up in the market. That's pushing down sales. Prices are still holding up. But I think at some point later this year, maybe in a month, two months, three months, we're going to start to see home prices fall on a year-over-year basis because you can't have, uh, you know, sales plummeting and prices as high as they are and still rising. California, how big an influence is the mortgage rate here? In other words, there's an affordability issue. Mortgage rates are a big part of that, but then income is a big part of that as well, whether you have a job or not and unemployment. Um, And as John said, prices is also a big part of that. Um, I'm showing the 30-year mortgage rate, Joe Lavornia, at 6, I'll call it 635 it got above 7%. It's come back down along with the 10-year. What do you make of that? How, what's the interest rate part of housing? Yeah, the, so the uh, the housing affordability has us collapsed. It's uh, it's uh, basically at a 20, 25-year low. And most of that is the mortgage rate, which is more than doubled from where it was, Larry, last year. So it's really been a, a cost of financing issue. And then, of course, as the labor market weakens, then you're going to lose uh, – uh, income, so the affordability will stay depressed even if even as rates come down. Uh, the thing with the labor market, I want to just this is very important. People aren't talking about this enough. So the labor market's tight. It, it is tight. It looks tight. But do you know that we are at all time record highs for construction payrolls? Does it really make sense that mm. the construction is going to stay where it is, given those housing numbers we've been talking about? Mm. The answer is no. Of course not. You're going to lose. Uh, I conservatively estimate we'll lose about a million construction-related jobs, which that alone will push the unemployment rate up 670 basis points from where it is. And, and that itself would be consistent with recession, assuming there were no other 
job loss anywhere else in the economy, which, of course, isn't going to happen. So the, the Fed needs to cut. The problem, of course, is, is that the Fed, as you know, waited way too long mm. uh, to, to come off of emergency rates when that V-shaped recovery began uh, in the middle of 2020. And now they're going to cause a bust on the other side. All right, gentlemen. Tough stuff. We appreciate it very much. Uh, John Carney of Breitbart, Joe Laborni of SNBC, Nico Securities. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're going to turn to uh, Joe Biden on the other side of the break. He doesn't regret anything. There's no there there. We'll talk to Cash Patel. I'm Larry Kudlow. Stick around, folks. Radio 77 WABC. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And uh, we bring in Cash Patel, He's a former federal prosecutor, chief of staff over at the Defense Department. And Cash, I want to talk to you. There's all this stuff. First of all, First of all, Biden says, was it yesterday, said uh, he has no regrets about the class, the mishandling of the classified documents. He has no regrets and there's no there there. Now, Cash, we've talked about this on the TV show. You've been extremely helpful, I might add. What's he talking about? Of course, there's a lot there there. And the trouble is that the White House won't answer any questions. What do you, how do you read this uh, latest development? Hey, Larry, it's great to be with you on the radio show again, and thanks for having me on the, on your TV show. The way I read this is it's sort of a continuation of what we're talking about. The White House under Biden is trying their case in the friendly radical left media. So when he goes out there and says there's no there there, then all the left-wing media outlets say there's no there there. They're not trying it with the DOJ. Of course, now we know that they secretly cooperated and were informed and given a heads up by the DOJ mm. – Totally unlike how they handled the Trump investigation. But in this type of case, it's almost like a bank robbery where you have the videotape and the guys don't have ski masks on. They <laughs> found the documents. They were classified. They've been out in the wild for six years, and they were at his residence. That's a violation of the law. It's a simple matter of fact as that. It's a big felony. And so what they're trying to do is nullify the justification, legal justification to bring this case in the public, almost like they did with the Hillary Clinton email saga. Well, I tell you. I uh, I mean, I'm reading this long Washington Post article, and it wasn't bad. I mean, consider, <laughs> considering it's the Washington Post. But, you know, Cash, they say, um, let's see, after six months, they're talking about the National Archives here, yeah. and they're describing this. And this is what we taught you. After six months, the archives typically take custody of the classified material. Right. You walk out of the White House, you got this stuff in your briefcase, classified, you got to give it to the archives. Uh, And it says later, when Biden was writing a book after leaving the vice presidency, he made the trip to the National Archives to review relevant documents, staying uh, on site to pour through them. Now, that's the right way to do it. But unfortunately, Mm -hmm. right, we discovered these other uh, cartons of documents or whatever, and we've not seen the FBI come in. These are crime scenes. Um, We are so confused about personal lawyers versus White House lawyers versus Justice Department lawyers and who had security clearance 
and how this was handled, and now he's got a special special counsel. In other words, how can Biden say there's no there there? He's in the middle of, of a thicket of corruption on this. Well, you're absolutely right, and he can't, but he will because that's his only defense he has left. He And, of course, his lawyers at the White House are saying they're fully cooperating. Well, just because you committed a crime and are fully cooperating doesn't make you innocent of that crime. And that's what the media is touting, his full and quick cooperation, and they're trying to juxtaposition that in how the Mar-a-Lago raid was handled. But from a public defense, you know, I used to be a public defender, too. And from that sort of standpoint, I think one of the things that just shocks me the most is I would never have a client be in charge with murder or bank fraud or what have you, where the prosecutor's office would call me and say, hey, you go investigate the crime scene, and whatever you find and think is relevant, submit it back to us, and we'll accept that. It's just the most ludicrous position for a law enforcement agency like the DOJ where I used to work and the FBI to take. But it shows you the two-tier system of justice. It shows you the disparate treatment that our law enforcement that has been completely weaponized is willing to do based on who the target of the investigation is. And all they want to do is give Joe Biden a hall pass. It's it's similar, like, like I said, to how they treated Hillary Clinton in her classified documents case because they allowed her lawyers to sift through everything quietly and then report back to them and sit in on every investigative investigative meeting and almost have a say in the prosecutorial decision, which should never really be the case. But um, this is the way it is under Merrick Garland, the DOJ, and, of course, Chris Ray and his FBI have been completely lost and abandoned. He's over there at Davos talking about how the way forward on national security is to partner with big tech. Oh. And, uh, you know, maybe you should get back to street crime fighting, but I don't see that happening. Well, I'm reading in the... Wall Street Journal this morning. So you're going to have a tug and pull, Cash. This is, I think, Mm -hmm. interesting and maybe important. So uh, uh, Comer, Republican Comer, the head of the whatever it's called, Oversight Committee, and maybe Jim Jordan also, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, they're going to want a lot of information. For example, Cash, who the hell were these lawyers? You have personal lawyers. And then you have White House lawyers. And then, by the way, you have a supposedly Justice Department lawyers, not FBI people, but justice lawyers mm-hmm. who, who probably are political appointees. In other words, who yeah. were these people? What were their credentials and clearance? That's a big part of the story. And they, so according to Wall Street Journal this morning, uh, the Justice Department is saying, well, we'll give you some information, but not too much. <laughs> what the hell's that? <laughs> Some well, information, it, but not too much, because we want to. You know, you know what they say. We want to preserve the integrity of our investigation. It's a congressional well, look, oversight. Yeah, uh, you couldn't be more right. And look, as a guy who ran the RussiaGate investigation at Congress for then Chairman Nunes on exposing the FBI, FISA, and DOJ corruption, um, it's 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 a hard slog. But the the problem is what the, what you just said. The Justice Department keeps touting. We're going to continue acting on our traditions and principles. Mm. It's those traditions and principles that they've weaponized Mm. at the Department of Justice to conduct these investigations. And there is a way through it from a congressional oversight standpoint. I agree with you. It's critical that these chairmen not only subpoena the information, but here's what we did when a Republican Justice Department during the Trump administration wouldn't cooperate with us. We fenced their money. 
You know, it's the one thing, as I say, these government gangsters will answer to, Chris Ray and Merrick Garland. They can't operate their agencies and departments with our taxpayer-funded dollars. And I'm not saying take their operational budgets, mm. but there's a structure in Congress in place called fencing money where you literally put up a, an imaginary fence around pools of money for, say, 10 new Escalades mm. or a fleet of new office spaces or things like that. And once you do that, it's totally legal and completely within the authority of the Speaker of the House and the Chairman. Then you will see documents show up with immediacy, mm. and that's what this Congress needs to do to break that logjam instead of have this letter wars that they are now going out in the media and having. It serves no purpose. They're going to deflect and delay until Congress really shows up um, and takes their money. So really, you need to cross rough the Appropriations Committee that oversees mm-hmm. justice and FBI has to work with the Oversight Committee or the Judiciary mm-hmm. Committee or both. That's what you're saying, because then it's a, you it's will... a little simpler than that. Actually, the committees of jurisdiction themselves, the Judiciary Committee, which oversees the FBI and DOJ and the Oversight Committee, which oversees the FBI and DOJ, have the inherent authority um, based on the budgeting to put these fences up themselves. Oh, so they, I didn't know that. They can do it themselves. They don't control the entire budget, of course, of the FBI and DOJ. But since they are the constitutional oversight committees, once they find jurisdiction, which they have here, they just have to be smart about it. And they got great lawyers over there on Jim Jordan's staff and Comer's mm-hmm. staff. Mm-hmm. They just got to be willing to do it. And that's up to Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, and Comer if they want to do it. Wow, that's very interesting. The other thing, Cash, that I'm still so confused about with respect to the role of the FBI or the lack thereof, I mean, these guys didn't have any problem crashing into Mar-a-Lago last summer. But (laughs) it's like I keep saying, you know, I've asked you, I've asked Andy McCarthy, I've asked Jim Comer, where the hell, where's the FBI? Now, these are crime uh, crime sites. Okay, I got that. Mm -hmm. But what I'm I'm reading in in papers, um, the when this is so complicated, just at one point, Justice Department lawyers were at the Wilmington House looking at documents and the FBI was was there too in sort of an oversight position. I, I don't get that. Why aren't these FBI special agents themselves doing the search? I don't understand. They, they weren't searching. Right. They were stand. It's like they were standing. You know, it's like regulators who stand behind traders on Wall Street so they don't do anything bad. It's like the FBI was standing over the personal lawyers or the White House counsel's lawyers examining documents. I don't understand that, Cash. Yeah, look, as a former DOJ national security prosecutor, you're absolutely right. You never sent the federal prosecutor to the crime scene to conduct the actual investigation. That's what the Federal Bureau Mm -hmm. of Investigation is for and their federal law enforcement agents. What Merrick Garland and Chris Ray have done is made an intentional decision to allow the Biden administration and his team, his staffers, his lawyers, and like you said, who knows who's had a security clearance, who has one currently, who's had one for the last six years, and we haven't even talked about the fact that the documents were never in a secure SCIF facility like you and I were used to reviewing documents, which is required under the law. But the problem for me is that they have made up a new set of rules in how this investigation is going to be conducted because they have already – they're working backwards from the conclusion. They are going to find a way to exonerate Joe Biden somehow. But my important point of this investigation is not just the disparate treatment of it, but I don't believe for one second that these librarians 
are the are the reason why this investigation began in November of 2022. I believe we will find out that the Hunter Biden laptop investigation led investigators to these documents, and they are covering oh, their tracks. Oh, oh, um, wow! And that that's what I believe. You guys, you, we, we will see that play out if if these huh. oversight committees do the job that needs to be wow. done. So they're all going to be linked. And that, yeah. that may be why that may explain motive. That may explain a lot of things here. All right. Uh, Cash, I just want to thank you for today. And you've been wonderful to us on the TV show. And I hope you continue to give us guidance. Cash Patel, former chief of staff to the secretary of defense, former senior director of counterterrorism at the National Security Council and the author of a children's book, The Plot Against the King, part two. 2,000 mules. I got to get hold of that. Cash Patel, thanks ever so much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to bring my pal Monica Crowley in to talk about these crazy zealots at the Davos conference. I mean, they're climate zealots. They're socialist zealots. They're just zealots. Anyway, I'm Kudlow. I'm not a zealot. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Special treat right now, Monica Crowley, great pal, uh, former Secretary of the Treasury for Public Affairs, author, columnist, commentator, everything, and the Monica Crowley podcast, which she finally let me do, by the way. <laughs> so, Monica, my love, I just... Uh, I guess Davos is over. Lolly Weymouth texted me about a dinner. <laughs> she loves Davos. I think yeah. here's the best. Elon Musk tweets, it's unelected world government bureaucrats, which I love. They are zealots. They're climate zealots. And I think they're becoming Chinese zealots. And I think they're uh, becoming socialist zealots also. Well, it's great to be with you this morning, my dear friend, Larry. Thank you so much. Um, I would just dispute your characterization a little bit because you're, you're using like the, the progressive tense, like they are becoming socialists. <laughs> they are becoming CCP lovers. Um, the, the World Economic Forum was founded by Klaus Schwab in 1971, Larry. So mm. they have been at this game for five decades. And what everybody needs to understand about them is, you know, Musk might call them zealots. Dr. Peter Bregan uh, referred to them as global predators. Mm. And I think that is a much more apt description for who and what they are. So these people are unelected operatives, and their objective is to move the world to what they call a fourth industrial revolution. But the difference between what what they have designed and previous and previous revolutions is that their intent is a one world government. Mm. This is what erasing everybody's borders is all about. This is why Biden has the border on the south of part of this country wide open. It's about erasing um, national borders. It's about a global surveillance state which is based on the CCP model, and it's all to be controlled by them, the new vanguard. So their slogan, Larry, is by 2030, you will own nothing and be happy. <laughs> everybody, needs, everybody needs to understand huh? this is not a joke. This is political, economic, and cultural Marxism, hmm. but it's even bigger than that. Because what they intend is that you will be a serf in their new world order with no freedom, no private property. No privacy, 
no bodily autonomy or medical freedom, no national identity, and no control. You will be a mere cog in their wheel to be dis- uh, dispensed with at their whim. And you'll be a green climate zealot. That's got to, I mean, these guys have gone whole hog. All these speakers. John Kerry was great. I loved John Kerry. Uh, I spent a quarter of one of our shows on John Kerry's stupidity, uh, spewing forth things. But when he went out and said money, money, money nine times, there you have it. So they're green zealots too, aren't they, Monica? Yes. But what everybody needs to understand is that these people don't give a flying whip about the climate or the environment. They just say that. That's their top-line argument. And maybe they have a little concern here and there. But as we saw at in Germany over the past week with Greta Thunberg, yeah. so-called getting arrested, and that was all fake. We got the video, and it was all staged. What everybody needs to understand when we talk about the so-called green agenda is they don't really care. John Kerry flies around the world on his private jet. There were 2,000 private jets that descended on Davos. If they really cared about that, they would walk there or take a bicycle. Okay? <laughs> the, the real objective here, Larry, is they all know that every country's energy sector, including ours, the biggest of them all in the United States, the energy sector is the biggest lever available to them to re-engineer the global economy. Uh, that's why they're attacking that's all the of central, that's, that's the central that's planning hook. That, you know yeah. what? I've said this, or I, I love that point. Right. They're using the green revolution, whatever, blah, blah, blah. That is the ultimate socialist central planning hook, which dominates all aspects of our life. And that's the Biden plan, isn't it, Monica? I mean, it's it's not just that. That's what the Bidens are doing. That is exactly right. And right. all of this movement to electric cars, well, what do electric cars run on? They run on electricity. Where does electricity come from? Coal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they are not interested at all in the environment or climate. It's all made up. It is a pretext for this much bigger agenda, which is to remake these economies into a global command economy. So, again, you are going to be a surf in their plan. And you know what, Larry? The ultimate obstacle to this is a free and independent and strong United States. So they need to knock over this country, knock over our economy in order to get the global plan, the Great Reset, as they call it, into place. And that's why they need people like Biden um, in office. This is why they need a leftist Congress and control over big tech and big pharma and all of these pieces working together to get to that objective. But you're exactly right. You and I have been talking about this a long time. The energy sector is the biggest of them all, and that's why they continue to wage war on it. And I'll tell you something else. Because energy is built into everything you purchase, this is another reason, Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to inflation, why everybody's prices are going up. But it's ultimately about power and control. If they have you in an electric car that has a cyber panel in it, they can shut you down in a second. You have overstepped your climate footprint for the month. No driving for you, Larry Kudlow. Oh, you want to take a flight to Denver? Mm, You overstepped your carbon footprint for the month. No flights for you. It's going to be an ultimate control surveillance society like the CCP has inflicted on the Chinese people. That's what they want worldwide, including here. Monica, can you tell us um, 
a little bit about what's it, Klaus Schwab? Is that his name? What What's his story? Do we know? Yes. So Klaus Schwab is an 84-year-old man who, again, started the World Economic Forum in Sleepy Davos in 1971. With this kind of vision in mind, he has a Nazi background. His father was a Nazi. Okay, so the the authoritarian impulse is in this man. His father was a Nazi. Correct. Wow, yes. I and didn't know that. Schwab has a Nazi background. Yeah. Um, what a lot of people don't know is that Schwab's right-hand man is a guy named Yuval Hariri, who is an Israeli, and he is he in many ways is more dangerous than Schwab. And I recommend everybody go to YouTube and look up this guy and his some of his videos. His last name is H-A-R-I-R-I, Yuval Hariri. I mean, this guy is so dangerous and frightening because what they have done now is, is marry this dystopian vision to tech and artificial intelligence. And part of the, in fact, AI was part of their big um, uh, agenda last week. It's such a huge component because part of what they're doing now is transhumanism, which is changing the very meaning of what it means to be human. It's marrying humanity to tech and artificial intelligence. And again, the bottom line is all about control. If you, if, if future generations, Larry, are you know, have a chip in their brain, like, you know, Musk is always talking about Neuralink and whatever. But if you think it's bad that they're going to have the ability to shut your car down or with the um, central bank digital currencies that they are launching around the world, shut your access off to your money. So you can't just go to Wells Fargo and get, you know, a couple hundred bucks to spend on a Saturday afternoon. If you think all of that is bad, imagine if they can control your very being. And I know that this sounds like out of space. It sounds like it's sci-fi, but they all tell you exactly what they are planning. Like all of our enemies, Larry, throughout history, you know, Hitler sat in jail and wrote Mein Kampf. Um, Mao put out the little book and so on. Our enemies always give us a tell. They always tell you exactly who they are, what they believe, and what they intend to do. And I recommend everybody read The Great Reset, which is the World Economic Forum Klaus Schwab puts out there. Um, go look at Yuval Hariri and his uh, crazy, scary uh, videos about transhumanism and changing the nature of humanity. This stuff is deep and it is terrifying, and they are very well on their road to achieving a lot of this. Monica, I have a free market chip in my brain. <laughs> Me too. People have tried to extract it for years, but they can't. It's a free market chip, so I'm fighting back. But I yeah. think, I don't know why everybody, uh, I don't know everything. I went to two Davos meetings because our former president went. I begged him not to go. I was in the Oval Office when Klaus Schwab and his guys made the pitch, and I begged him not to go. I said, this is a left-wing operation. But, you know, Trump was riding high on the economy, so he wanted to go and brag about it. But, you're I mean, the Davos thing, it's all a bunch of nutty stuff. But I guess it's serious stuff. We'll have to worry about that. Anyway, Monica Crowley, thanks for the rundown. We appreciate it very, very much. Folks, we're going to take a little break. On the other side, we will do some stock market work. It wasn't a great week for the stock market or the economy. I'm Kudlow. We will be back.
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow here. Free market prosperity. We need a lot more of it. By the way, here, this show, you can you can get us on the Internet, okay? LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can hear it all across the country and around the world and throughout the solar system and the Milky Way on the Internet. And uh, during the week, please tune us in on television. Fox Business Network, FBN. The hottest business network, by the way, crushing the competition. And that's 4 to 5 p.m. Name of the show is Kudlow. And you can DVR us. Just text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. Anyway, we're going to do some stock market work. Not a great week for stocks. The Dow is off 927 points. The S&P 500, not so bad, minus 26. The NASDAQ actually increased by a small amount, 61 points. Let's see what happened here. Interest rates, and down a little bit. The 10 years, 348, it was off two basis points. Got a badly inverted yield curve. Three-month Treasury bill, 463, and the 10 years, 348. That is a classic recession signal, deeply inverted curve. But what is interesting here is that uh, commodities are rallying. Gold is rallying. Oil is rallying. Copper is rallying. So I'm interested to know what all this means. We had some very bad recession-type numbers that we talked about earlier in the show with Joe Livornia and John Carney. Anyway, Jim LeCamp is here, Senior VP at Morgan Stanley, and Mike Ozanian, Assisting Managing Editor of Forbes Media and co-host of the excellent show, Forbes Sports Money. That's on the Yes Network. And I've watched that thing a whole bunch of times. Anyway, gentlemen, welcome. Uh, I'll begin with you, Mike Ozanian. Uh, what's your outlook for stocks right now? Let's talk stocks. I think stocks are headed still lower, at least uh, through the first half of this year, uh, mostly because of earnings, Larry. Uh, hmm. Looking at fourth quarter earnings growth, they expect negative 3.9%. Hmm. It'll be the first time it reported year-over-year decline in earnings since the third quarter of 2020. Hmm. Uh, which I think is uh, a bad sign. And earnings revisions, Larry, and, and, you know, this really troubles me because, as we know, Wall Street analysts tend to look at things through rose-colored glasses, but even in December they went deeply negative in, in their revisions. Uh, so so that bothers me as well. Uh, so I I just don't see corporate profits growing. You know, you even go to the Fed and looks at even the small businesses and, Talking about profits from current production, uh, in the third quarter, we haven't got the fourth quarter read yet. In the third quarter, they decreased by $1.3 billion. Mm. So I, I think we're going to see shrinking profits, uh, stubbornly high inflation. Uh, and so and I think the Fed is going to stick to its interest rate increase path. And so I'm bearish on stocks, at least through the first half of this year. You know, it's interesting, uh I'll say this for Jim LeCamp, but both of you. I had um, on the TV show last week, I had Ed Yardeni, who was a very, very smart guy, famous economist for many, many decades. Um, And he was making a case uh, for 
A, a soft landing, and B, a stock market rally. His view was just interesting that the market bottomed uh, in the using the S&P 500, uh, Jim LeCamp, the market bottomed in mid-October and is still pushing above the 200-day moving average. And I say that because, um, again, Yardeni is a famous guy and a very smart guy. He also happens to be a nice guy. Uh, and he was very articulate on the show. And it's a contrary view, Jim LeCamp. What do you make of it? Uh, the markets really have struggled with the 200-day moving average, and the S&P peaked its head above the 200-day moving average a couple of days last week and then pulled by, right back down, just like it did a month ago, just mm. like it did two months ago, mm. just like it did back in August and back in March of last year. It's really struggled with it, and the uh, NASDAQ is still well below. I used to work with Ed many, many years ago at Prue-Bage, so I, I have great respect for him. But there's too many headwinds out there. Um, first of all, historically, you don't get a bear market bottom going all the way back to World War II until you get a Fed cut. Now, we, we had a little bit of that at the end of 2018, but technically that wasn't a bear market. It was 19.2%. So uh, look at leading economic indicators. They're pointing sharply down. Mm-hmm. Um, ISM services, ISM manufacturing. CapEx plans. Mm. And I agree, as you know, Larry, I love to debate, but I agree with everything Michael said about profits and earnings expectations, and that goes to valuations. But beyond that, Tina is no longer there. Tina has been replaced uh, by Tata. Tina (laughs) was, there is no alternative to stocks. It's gone. Tata is treasuries are the alternative. Uh, treasury yields are over 4% on the, the, the three-month and uh, in the one year, and a lot of people are just parking their money there until they see the stocks clearly break above. But I don't think we see that until we have either more compelling valuations or the Fed cuts rates, and the real interest rates are still negative. So the Fed's not going to stop their rate hikes until they at least get positive real interest rates. So I, I still think we've got some messiness in front of us. Yeah, I don't, I don't really disagree, but I just thought Ed Yardini's view was uh, quite interesting. Look, I think Ed Hyman agrees. You know, he's bearish um, on stocks and the economy. The numbers came out last week, and I, I talked about this earlier in the show. The numbers for everything, retail sales, industrial production, manufacturing, housing starts, and existing home sales, all bad. Um, You may have a negative GDP in the first quarter. You may only get 1% or so in the fourth quarter. I think that comes out later this week. So I I have no reason to disagree with the bearish view. Just saying, I'm always looking for a little, little bit of optimism um, let me ask you another thing, though. Michael Zane, uh, profits are the mother's milk of stocks. So your points on earnings are very well taken. On the other hand, I don't see in the bond market, the corporate bond market, Mike, I don't see any, you know, crack up. The spreads, the so-called risk spreads or the quality spreads with, um, you know, BAA versus Treasuries, or high yield versus treasuries. I don't see any big crack up there yet. It seems like I, 
So that, you know, that's a small plus. Yeah, no, look, it is. But I I wonder, Larry, if that's not uh, uh, fun because some think that the Fed will will not continue its path of tightening. Um, The other thing, too, is uh, in terms of corporate balance sheets, we have weathered this and coming out of the pandemic. And this is where I don't think uh, I think a lot of people miss this during the Trump presidency. Corporate balance sheets got extremely strong, mm. extremely strong. Mm. Uh, debt was generally way down and and at low interest. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of cash, a lot of equity. So I, I think that's helping them weather that. But in general, my feeling is that I, I think the debate we see in the market, just like with the spreads you're mentioning, is is between those who think that the Fed's going to continue its path of tightening and those that think somehow it will not. Uh, I tend to think that it will. I think it has to, uh, given how late it started in its fight on inflation. And you mentioned commodities at the top of the show. Mm. I think I, I think that I'm a big believer in looking at commodities. And, and I think that commodity prices are also saying that inflation is going to be stubborn for a while. And the, the big miss, and, and again, you know, I, I hate to go against Ed Yardeni because like the two gentlemen I'm on the phone with right now, I've learned a great deal from him. I get his research. But I just suspect that the weakness in housing mm. is, is not being taken into full account by some people. And I'm just looking at KB Homes. They recently came out to the sixth largest home builder in America. They experienced the other day, they said, reported a 68% cancellation rate mm. in fourth quarter of 22, which means that home buyers canceled 68% of the homes that went under contract in that quarter. Mm. A year ago, it was only 13%. So I, I think that the sharp downturn in housing is not being fully calibrated into, into some of the people that are more positive than we are. Yeah, you know, uh, on that point, single-family housing starts are down 25% for the past 12 months. And the single-family permits, which is a leading indicator, is down 35%. I mean, those are very bad numbers. Uh, And we were talking about that earlier. Home prices are probably going to start falling quite a bit. Jim LeCamp, uh, I'm also interested that gold... Is rally gold is up about three hundred dollars from the lows. All right, in round numbers, it's over nineteen hundred now, and it was sixteen hundred a couple of months ago. Uh, Silver has been up, and copper has been up. Doctor Copper has been up. Jim McCann. Mm -hmm. What's Mm -hmm. all? What's that telling you? What? What's all that mean? Why? Why is that so Uh, strong? Yeah, I think it's two things. Uh, When you look at uh, industrial commodities, base metals, iron ore copper those are all rallying in my view on china reopening and the china stock stock market is reflecting that as well with gold it's something far more interesting in my view china is buying russian oil uh, at a discount they're buying iranian oil at a discount they're buying venezuelan oil at a discount and they're selling it to europe but there's been a lot of noise about china and russia pushing for payments to be made either in remibi or in gold. And we've seen Chinese accumulation, a Chinese central bank accumulation of gold at record levels. Mm. And other central banks 
are following suit. Now you've got all these paper ETF gold companies saying, yeah, we better stock up our the gold that we have uh, that is supposed to back these ETFs. So there's a lot of forces at work at gold that are a little bit of a separate discussion than what we're seeing in the uh, base metals, industrial metals, et cetera, which is more tied to China. One other thing about gold, though, uh, Larry, is the whole crypto crowd has realized that's a far more problematic trade uh, than they thought it was going to be. And some of those folks are likely uh, moving their hedge-type uh, investments into the gold area. I'm just looking. I love the crypto story. Uh, Bitcoin, 22,000. Mm-hmm. How about that? I think the low was 12,000. I know the high was 60,000. But I don't know. Might be a great buy. I I, I think the the problem with crypto is it's still a little bit of a Tower of Babel. Uh, you've got Bitcoin. You've got Litecoin. You've got Ethereum. You, you've got a lot of people that don't know where the real leadership's going to be. And uh, while blockchain is here to stay and, and I think is going to be something more and more viable – uh, I think you're going to see more uh, continued, I should say, volatility in the crypto coin space. And I think investors need to kind of view that as Vegas money. Vegas money. All right, kids. Let's take a break. Quick break. Come back. Jim LeCamp, Morgan Stanley, Mike Ozanian, Forbes Media, and Sports Money on the S yes Network. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back with more on stocks. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. On 77 WABC. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jim LeCamp, Morgan Stanley, and Mike Ozanian, assistant managing editor of Forbes Media and co-host of Forbes Sports Money on the Yes Network. So, Mike Ozanian, what does an investor do right now amidst a certain amount of doom and gloom? Well, I'm bearish on the broader market, Larry. Uh, I think there could be some great opportunities to cherry pick on some bad news recently. So some of the banks, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, great companies, uh, they increased their loss reserves by a significant amount, billions. And stocks took a hit. Right now, they're both selling right about at book value. Uh, So I kind of like the valuation there. Another way to play the downturn in financials is with – Vanguard Financials ETF, ticker symbol VAFH.1V. I think that's intriguing. And lastly, I'll quickly add Paramount Global, the big media company uh, uh, where the voting shares are controlled by National Amusements. That was uh, Redstone. Uh, Buffett's now the biggest holder in that company uh, through Berkshire. And Paramount has struggled and may struggle for a time. They haven't quite figured out how this whole streaming, Internet, and all that content is going to work as people move away from, you know, television sets and so forth. But, you know, I think you do worse than betting alongside Warren Buffett. You know, Paramount Plus, uh, they did Yellowstone. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be worth is, yeah. Huh? They have great content. Yeah. The question do. is the profit margins on it have been, have been narrow. So I, I think that that's – scared Wall Street away, but uh, they, they've got some great programming. But the, there's a lot of competition in that space, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, I love to be entertained at night if the, I, you know, I, I can't wait till the 
Yankees get going again because, you know, I watch a few innings every night to relax. So, I, you know, I, I watch uh, Netflix and I watch Amazon Premium and you see this Paramount stuff. It's pretty good. But they're fighting with everybody else. HBO Plus has got one. Apple's got one. I mean, it's a tough space. So just saying. Uh, Jim LeCamp, what does a poor investor do right now amidst all this non-fabulous news? Well, you can't watch the Rangers a few innings every night because you're not going to get any rest at all doing that. So that's what not to do. Um, One of the things you can look at in here is natural gas uh, stocks. Natural gas prices have plummeted because Europe stocked up on natural gas, uh, fearing a cold winter. The winter wasn't as bad as we thought. But the rig count's actually down. Um, And if you look at capacity across the world and what OPEC says about capacity, I still like oil and gas, but on a relative scale, the the gas stocks look better. Also, uh, some of the international markets actually are breaking out. And I think on a relative basis, they'll do a little better than the U.S. Wall Street's been calling for international areas to do better for probably more than a decade now, and they've been wrong. But we're now finally seeing the whites of their eyes in that we're seeing the breakouts on the charts. So we have a little exposure to Europe, have a little exposure to the A-shares in China. Uh, but I still think investors need to play defense here and wait. Uh, I don't think it's going to be that long, probably late summer, and we'll see some real opportunity. Uh, some of the materials areas are still relatively strong as well. And, again, a, a play on China reopening. So there's a few places to play, uh, a few players you can put out on the field. Uh, but I just wouldn't try to field the whole team here. I'd, I'd play more defense. Is the China thing, I, I hear and read so much about China reopening. Um, first of all, their latest GDP report was down around 3%, which for them is very, very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got a very repressive uh, President Xi and his Communist Party, very anti, you know, free market, all that Deng yep. Xiaoping stuff years back. So... Yeah, I don't know how to read it. COVID. Well, they've, had a, they've had a little bit of a sea change on how they're treating COVID and that they, they finally have given up on this zero COVID policy mm. and are more open towards some sort of a herd immunity plan. Um, but it's not only reopening China to a degree, but a lot of the surrounding emerging markets. And um, yeah, this trade isn't real early. I don't I think I don't think. Um, people can just uh, buy that buy that area and sit on it and relax. I think it's more of a trade, but um, on, on a relative basis, it is doing better. And uh, again, you know, so is Europe. Mike Kazanian, uh, can the Giants beat Philadelphia tomorrow? No, tonight. Oh. What am I saying? Tonight, eight fifteen. Eight fifteen. Absolutely, they could yeah, beat them because. Yeah, this is starting to remind me of those runs in 2007 and 2011. You know, not the greatest regular seasons in the world. But, hey, look, we're playing with house money right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a rebuilding year. We weren't even supposed to be a 500 team, let alone get into the playoffs. You know, that's how I say we. You know, I'm feeling good about it, so I say we. (laughs) It's like when our Yankees are on a roll, it's we. When they're in a slump, it's them. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, we have the hottest quarterback in football. That's all I'll say. 8.15 tonight, Giants, Philadelphia. Go Giants. Mike Ozadian, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate Jim LeCamp. Thank you so much. Folks, stick around. We're going to do some money in politics. 
John Fund is coming. Liz Peek is coming. Joe Biden is coming. Al Gore is coming. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and we are here talking money and politics with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor, syndicated columnist, and John Fund, National Review, and Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and John's most recent book, Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. All right, kids, thank you for coming on. John Fund saw... I want you to know I got your I got your email about Al Gore. I don't I don't like Al Gore either. He's made a lot of money about being wrong on climate change. Um, at the moment, I think the bigger dummy is John Kerry, and his speech at Davos was a speech for a dummy. I mean, money, 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 money. He attacked economic growth. He attacked the Gilded Age robber barons, who are my heroes in free market capitalism. But go ahead, John. Tee off on Al Gore. Don't let me stop you. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you, Larry, about John Kerry. John Kerry has a position in government. Luckily, the voters in 2000 spared us <laughs> any more time that Al Gore would spend in government. So he's been a, a loud voice in the wilderness for 23 years while he takes in $2 million a month uh, from a carbon trading company. So uh, talk about uh, living well by uh, spewing nonsense. But uh, John Kerry, let's actually I'll focus on John Kerry because he's the more imminent threat. John Kerry gets up and he basically pats everyone on the back saying, you know, your commitment to the planet, your commitment to humanity is so great. Why, it's extraterrestrial. I mean, it's so marvelous. I mean, you, you literally have separated yourself from the rest of humanity who's, who's just grubbing for, to try to make a living and, and try to feed their family. I mean, you have higher aspirations. You, you're in a higher plane of existence. I mean, at the same time, he's addressing an audience that had filled all of the airports around, within two hours of Davos with 1,500 private jets. <laughs> Including John Kerry's. I know. I'm sorry, that was a government jet that John Kerry flew in on. Yeah, well, it still uses fuel. <laughs> you know, Liz Peek, uh, John Kerry is the, one of the biggest dummies in Washington. Uh, he gives this speech about money, money, money. He said money nine times. He wants, It's like a foreign aid program is what it is. Uh, and, and taxpayers don't want to finance it. But, Liz, what really ticked me off was when he attacked the robber barons, uh, the Gilded Age. That was one of the greatest periods of economic history, free enterprise, technology advances and steel and oil and airplanes and telephones and telegraph. How dare he attack the robber barons? It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it, Larry? I mean, here you have a group of people, what John Kerry tone-deafly described as a select group of people solving the world's problems, all of every single one of which is a pretty wealthy person. And they spend most of the week decrying wealth accumulation, mm-hmm. wanting to – Oxfam started the whole thing, the ball rolling uh, at the World Economic Forum, talking about how they wanted to reduce the number of billionaires in the world by half, <laughs> uh, you know, in the near future, ah. and by taxing them – I mean, it, it, it's such a laughable 
event and laughable sort of collective idiocy that you kind of tend to laugh at it. We all have laughed at it. But you know what? It's also very serious because these people get together and lay down uh, policy prescriptions for the world. And they're quite serious about imposing global carbon taxing or carbon sourcing and all this stuff on everybody, including Americans. And here, I mean, I've been sitting here this week kind of thinking, what is it about the World Economic Forum that drives us all nuts? Yes, it's the hypocrisy and stuff, but it's really basically China versus the United States. Mm -hmm. And all these globalist institutions have basically lined up uh, on the side of China in terms of embracing policies, wittingly or unwittingly, that basically help China and hurt America. That's really what this is about. And you know, if you don't believe me, I mean, look at what's happened at the World Health Organization, the World Trade Organization. You go through all these globalist institutions, they're not on our side. And I think, you know, I mean, Joe Biden's cl clownish group is not bright enough to figure that out. I think American taxpayers are. And if, when they're told about it, they're told about how so-called free trade has hurt our country. You know, they're willing to listen. And and. Uh, that, of course, inflames the conversation at the World Economic Forum. They're horrified that, gosh, there's an anti-globalist trend out there, including Joe Biden, who talks about friend sourcing, something that was a big topic of conversation and came in for a lot of criticism at Davos. So, I, I mean, I think it is funny, but honestly, it's not funny in terms of but, what they're trying to achieve. You know, John, a lot of this crap is reflected in Biden economic policy. Right. Yes. Right. The, 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 John, the climate zealotry, that's for sure. But also Liz's point about, you know, Oxfam, uh, let's reduce the volume of billionaires by half because Biden wants to punish success, not reward it. That's a, you know, a hangover from the Obama days. You know, you didn't you didn't create that business. We did. But that's part and parcel. And also. You know, throughout Davos, I saw a lot of sort of smaller stuff, but uh, diversity and equity and inclusion. In other words, John, all the left-wing woke climate cult stuff that you see at Davos is seems to be what Biden and the Democrats are pushing. I mean, it's the same thing. Larry, we have this week gotten the first postmortem of the Biden administration itself attacking its own energy policies. Uh, the Biden people issued a report through the State Department uh, basically saying, look, we made a mistake on Keystone. The Biden's first move uh, to placate his left yeah. was to kill the Keystone pipeline, kill jobs, kill uh, a better pathway for fuel, oil to, to be transported from Canada through, to the United States, and everybody criticized it, including Biden's labor union supporters. And Biden steadfastly stood by it. Now, with gas prices being volatile, with Russia creating turmoil in the oil markets, with, with clear problems in supply chains, what does Biden finally admit? Oh, I made a mistake. Mm. But is he going to go back and try to put the Keystone Pipeline back together again? Of course not. This is this thing, John, you're referring to. Uh, what, 60,000 jobs lost and I think 9 or $10 billion in output from the Energy Department, which they were ordered and mandated in one of these stupid bills. That's the one you're referring to? Yes. 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and what, what the Biden administration did, the Department of Energy released a report highlighting all of the positive economic benefits that Keystone would have brought and basically saying it was a net plus. Mm, but this yeah. was the same project that Biden canceled just hours after he was inaugurated. Yeah, they won't. They won't change. You're right. I mean, they're just not in a position to change. You know, Liz, just I got to take a break, but um, I'm waiting for my pals uh, in the Republican House to put up H.R. 1 or H.R. 2 uh, to reopen the oil and gas bigots. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Haven't yeah. seen it yet. I'm a little, you know, I'm a little miffed at that. And one other point, as you know, um, Biden and Jennifer Granholm, another dummy running the energy uh, department, and nothing about energy, they said to the Republicans, don't stop us from SPRO sales because that would cause gasoline prices to go up. Liz, this is what we all said months ago, right? This was political price fixing to get gas down. Had nothing to do with emergencies, catastrophes, and hurricanes. Had nothing to do with national security, which is what SPRO is supposed to be all about. They literally use SPRO to bring down gasoline prices. And they acknowledged it this week. And it makes me furious. Totally politically motivated, totally uh, to line up for the midterm elections, because there is nothing that polls more consistently with the president's approval rating more than gasoline prices. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it was a reckless thing to do. It is. I mean, it, it just boggles the mind that they are so indifferent to the welfare of the country that they would do that. Um, but they did. Yeah. And so, you know, we are left in a weakened position uh, as a result of that. But to John's point, much more grave is the fact that we have dumbed down our oil and gas businesses uh, to the point where we're not producing what we were back in 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not able to, to basically offset uh, price increases with increased production. Really, what is what are these people thinking? It, it's just pandering. It's pandering to a left-wing group of climate zealots who give a lot of money to the Democrats uh, and and basically have much more say in our policy making than they should. And finance Davos. Yeah, no question. <laughs> All right, no we're going to take a quick break. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, John Fund, National Review Committee to Unleash Prosperity. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Larry Kudlow on 77 WABC. The Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here talking money and politics with Liz Peake, Fox News contributor and syndicated columnist, and John Fund, National Review, and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Uh, John's latest book is Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Um, kids, I want to talk about the debt ceiling, a couple things. After telling us for weeks that he won't meet with um, Kevin McCarthy yesterday, uh, Joe Biden broke down and said, yes, okay, I'll meet with you. And they're going to negotiate over the debt ceiling. Uh, Then I'm looking at a Washington Post headline on my on my phone, my cell phone. So they the post has blocked me so I can't do the whole thing. But the headline was Biden aids want to force GOP to abandon debt limit threats, uh, uh, by which I presume they mean spending cuts and spending caps and sequestration, all of which, in my opinion, are good things, not bad things. 
Um, I want to get to you, Liz, on this, but John Fund, the politics of this, is he kidding me? They think they're going to stonewall and stop the GOP from forcing spending cuts uh, in connection with this debt ceiling? How do you see it, John Fund? Well, that strategy has worked in the past, Larry. Uh, You know, we've come a long way from 10 years ago when, uh, to their credit, John Boehner and Mitch McConnell were able to use the debt ceiling to convince Barack Obama to extend the Bush tax cuts Mm -hmm. and to get some real restraint on discretionary spending. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, it's been, you know, a series of Mexican standoffs, and more often than not, the Republicans have blinked. Uh, I think after the pandemic and after the incredible infusion of trillions of dollars of spending into the economy, the Republicans, if they don't stand up for principle now, two things will happen. The markets and everyone will basically realize that their talk of fiscal responsibility is a sham, Mm. and their base voters will say, why in the world am I voting for these people if I want to restrain government? Because they always fold like a cheap suit if, uh, if they're confronted by Democrats saying, you're blue meanies. So I think the Republicans, both for philosophical and for practical reasons and for political reasons, have to stand firm on this. And I think that since the debt ceiling can be extended almost to, you know, Buzz Lightyear into infinity if you play enough accounting tricks, I don't think there's a hard break that they have to meet. I think the Republicans have to hold firm and will probably not resolve this until June or July if they do. So, Liz, uh, I think, John, the question is, will the Republicans blink? I think John is correct politically. They cannot blink. If they blink, they're finished. They're absolutely finished. Uh, That's the point. Financially, Liz, I'm just thinking, you know, all this nonsense brouhaha. Look, we will pay the the interest expense on the 10-year bonds and so forth. There will always be revenues to do that. It's a phony argument. And, by the way, Democrats don't give a damn about that, the debt. Since when? They've created so much debt of, what, $5 trillion debt in two years or something. So how how do you see this? This is a political issue, it's a financial issue, and it's a huge budget policy issue. I I think it's all of that. I mean, we saw in the first fiscal quarter that interest costs on our debt were up 37 percent, Larry. That's just the beginning. And I think voters are not stupid. I think they're going to get it. That, uh, to John's point, after spending uh, – uh, the Committee for the Federal Responsible Budget, whatever, Responsible yeah. Federal Budget, says that Biden has enabled $4.8 trillion in increased deficits over the coming year. Already we are at levels of debt to GDP we've never been at before. Some of that was justified because we had this unusual COVID shutdown, catastrophic shutdown, but now it's not. And I think – What is so offensive is that the Biden administration continued to spend even after the recovery was well underway, and they continue to push for more spending. And I I do think it is time to put your foot down. The only reason that Biden says he'll meet with McCarthy, they must figure that they've got some political vulnerability here for the – Karine Jean-Pierre to come out and say, we will not negotiate. We want a clean thing. This is non-negotiable. Okay, well, two people have to get to an agreement. Congress has to agree with the president, basically, on on move, you know, steps forward. This is where they can do that. And I, I agree 100%. The Republicans have got to take a stand. It's a fight worth having. 
Uh, and I think that voters will back them up. And I think the White House must be sensitive to that or Biden would not have done a U-turn on, on me. Yes, there you go. I think you are correct. You know, it's so funny yesterday. So in the in the TV, so I did my riff, Liz, and in the riff I said that Biden's going to break his pr- his pr- yeah. pledge. I said in a few weeks, if not a few days, and then I had Jim Banks on from Indiana. <laughs> he said, "Well, he said that McCarthy just tweeted out he's going to meet with Biden." So I was wrong. It was a few minutes, <laughs> but that's a key point. He has to do this. He yeah. has to meet with him because he knows politically he's on the wrong side. But John, yeah. Fon- John, Fon- your point. Let's go. Boehner was right. You know, it's funny. Boehner gets such a bad rap from conservatives. I don't know why. Boehner toughed it out. He preserved 99 percent of the Bush tax cuts. He got spending caps. He got automatic, you know, sequestration, automatic spending cuts. He got all that. Now, it only worked for a year or two. And then the Republicans caved in and the senators started waving the caps. But but essentially, McCarthy has to do what Boehner did. And the conservatives, the Freedom Caucus guys, I've interviewed almost all of them, I think they'll be totally behind them, totally behind them. And Kevin Hassett says $3 of spending cuts for every dollar of debt increase. I don't know. I find that quite reasonable. But that's where this is going to go, John. The GOP cannot. If they do, the party may as well disintegrate. Well, remember, um, there's a uh, there's a famous saying that, you know, cynics in politics believe Washington has a evil party and a stupid party. <laughs> and the reason why you don't want to have bipartisan legislation often is because you get legislation that's both evil and stupid. <laughs> and if the Republican Party is stupid enough, as it <laughs> usually is, not to stand up for its principles, they'll end up being accessories to evil, which is exp- expanding the debt and, of course, the skyrocketing interest rates that we have, which will eventually squeeze out worthwhile government programs. One of the things that we always warned about with the Biden debt is when interest rates go up, it's going to be an incredible squeeze on some legitimate programs. Mm. That's right. There's a crowding out inside the it's budget. It's already happening. Yeah. It's already happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, that yeah, look. Don't cut Social Security. Don't cut Medicare. There's plenty else to cut, including all of the – they call them mandatory, but they're not really mandatory. But it's the food stamps. It's welfare. That's right. It's housing allowances. Uh, it's You know, it's all these programs, by the way, that have no workfare. Workfare would be a huge thing to put in here because if people go back to work, then they're going to pay – taxes and they will be off welfare so it's less spending and more revenues so they go after those programs and then they go after the discretionary programs and you know liz there's got it there's some waste fraud and abuse in the defense department everybody knows that it's not going to be a 50 50 split but there's some money can come out of you know most of it will be non-military but some of it will be military but the gop i mean Liz, we'll re we'll derail you and I'll go out and start a new political party if they blow this. Okay, we'll just we'll do it on the air. We'll have a Fox special. We'll have a new set up a new party. 
look, I, I think this is doable. I mean, we've had yes. instances in the past where, I mean, maybe Joe Biden, in an enlightened moment, it's hard to imagine, actually takes a leaf from Bill Clinton's playbook, right, and says, okay, this is what we're going to do to kind of get our debt under control, get our spending under control. To your point, Larry, that was part of the agreement uh, that Bill Clinton reached was mm-hmm. reducing those uh, benefits programs to make them more really equitable. I mean, that I think at some point here, the Republicans need to talk about what's fair. What's fair to taxpayers? It is not fair to taxpayers to have people earning sixty to seventy or eighty thousand dollars a year doing nothing. Mm. That is not fair. Mm. And you know, the White House talks a lot about equity and equitable outcomes. Mm. This is inequitable. So. You know, uh, disability is another one, by the way, that you could have thrown in the hopper. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that would be it. I was just looking at Twitter and Hakeem Jeffries is talking, Americans, uh, Republicans want to blow up Medicare. No, we don't. That's not really on the table. I mean, they're going to lie and they're going to posture. But the truth of the matter, if, if Republicans can get their act together and with a concise message about cutting spending because it's fair to taxpayers, mm. I think that sells. And it's pro-growth and it's anti-inflation. That's right. That's you know, right. it's all those things. And uh, I, if you know, this, I'll, I'll read the Washington Post story, White House AIDS. It's a Jeff Stein story, so there's probably something to it. But um, the GOP has no chance. They cannot blink, to use John's uh, metaphor. They cannot blink here. I agree. And I never understood. I haven't really liked, by the way, I don't know if you ever met John Boehner. He's a wonderful man. He gets such a bad rap. I don't know why. He's a terrific man. Anyway, I'm off subject. Liz Peak, fabulous stuff. John Fun, thank you ever so much. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. I will be back next weekend. It's my favorite three hours of the day, of the weekend, of the year. (laughs) We'll have much more. 